Welcome to Wired Foresight. I'm Greg Williams. According to the 2019 Global Health Security Index, the US was ranked number one in the world in pandemic preparedness. Yet the coronavirus crisis proved catastrophic, with the country suffering 590,000 deaths. What went wrong is perhaps the central theme of Lawrence Wright's new book, The Plague Year, America in the Time of Covid. Lawrence is a long-time New Yorker writer known for his deep reporting, and he talks to public health officials, frontline workers, political leaders across the country, figures within the Trump administration, scientists and historians to try and understand the complex but interconnected nature of this devastating event. Lawrence is the author of several books, but is best known for his investigation into Scientology, Going Clear, and his book on the September 11th attacks, The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda, and the road to 9-11, for which he won a Pulitzer Prize. Lawrence, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Greg. Thanks, Lawrence. So I'm really keen to sort of get into sort of um, the amazing reporting that you've done in the book, because it really does bring alive so many aspects of this. And we've only in the last week in the UK, we've seen some of the photos of the modelling that was going on in, in Downing Street um, hand-drawn graphs on whiteboards, um, annotated with the words, must avoid NHS collapse. This has all been revealed last week by the Prime Minister's former special advisor, Dominic Cummings. I'm really intrigued to get a sense from you uh, what you picked up during your, your reporting in, in terms of the healthcare, in the U- healthcare system in the US. How close was it to collapse? Well, it's, you know, varies all across the country, different places, different times. You know, New York was totally unprepared when April was a crisis. And, uh, you know, the governor put out a a, a help, an SOS, and 30,000 American professionals responded. You know, in Bellevue, the, the chief of medicine there said that if, for a while, half the people in the emergency ward uh, spoke with southern accents, said if it hadn't been for them, you know, we would have gone under. And then, you know, it moved around. Uh, you know, even with the example of New York, a lot of the red states in, in the summer when they were really affected uh, had failed to heed uh, the example of New York, and they were overwhelmed. So it was different times in the year there's you know some some hospitals were really near collapse uh it was amazing that we didn't see more damage to be frank yeah and i I guess it really was due to the fact that um you know hospitals like bellevue um became kind of almost like beacons because so many people were willing so many healthcare workers were willing to to go and 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 pitch in there because obviously bellevue's got such a, a history uh with pandemics maybe you can talk a little bit about that Oh, Bellevue is a fascinating story. You know, it's the oldest public hospital in America and in many respects still the most important. Uh, It was where uh, the ambulance corps was created. It was where nursing schools began, you know. (laughs) And, you know, it's been through since the 17th century, you know. uh, It was an almshouse. And, you know, during the cholera and yellow fever epidemics, uh, which, you know, the, filled the what were then the pauper's graveyards that became Washington Square and Bryant Park. Uh, this was Bellevue. And even, you know, even up to the Ebola 
uh, crisis. Uh, you know, they knew that the first Ebola patient in America would come to Bellevue, and uh, and sure enough, that's what happened. During AIDS, it it received you know more AIDS patients than any other hospital in America. So, you know, it is the crisis hospital in our history. And clearly, when we think about these crises, we think about the patients and the terrible toll on, on patients, but obviously you know, healthcare workers and you, you, the, some of the great reporting you do in the book really does kind of get under the skin what, what it was like to be on the front line. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, what it was like to be on the COVID wards when the pandemic was, was raging, especially, you know, at the very beginning when, you know, there were still so many questions about, uh, you know, what this virus was and how it spread and, and how we were going to combat it. Yeah, just to take the example of Bellevue, which we were just talking about, uh, Baron Lerner is a doctor there. And uh, there was in March a uh, a meeting, a staff meeting, uh, and they were just beginning to figure out the symptoms and so on, you know, what to look for, cough, you know, fever, flu-like symptoms, you know, but, uh, uh, and he had a a patient uh, that came in that day uh, and uh, she spoke an obscure Asian language. And it turns out in Bellevue, they have a hundred translators on call. So <laughs> they they have a dual telephone system. So uh, the patient and the doctor each picked up a receiver. And finally, this uh, translator came on. And so uh, Dr. Lerner asked, you know, what are your symptoms? And well, it was fever and cough. And it was all the things that he had, that, uh, that he had heard that morning. And uh, sure enough, uh, uh, Lerner came down with COVID, and he thinks he was the first in Bellevue, first healthcare worker. Uh, but, you know, he, he at that time said, well, stay where you are. A nurse will come in and give you a mask and so on. But that was the beginning in Bellevue. And it, it started out with just a few patients. They died. Uh, you know, there were people who had uh, terrible symptoms when they came in, and there was no way to save them, and there was no standard practice. You know, there was no vaccine, there were no therapeutics. So really, there was little that could be done except to try to make them more comfortable and hope that they pulled through. But the fatality rate at that time was terrible. And, you know, it was, you know, emergency crews are used to having intense bursts of activity. And so, you know, if you have a heart attack, for instance, victim, uh, then for 30 minutes, you know, you have air, airway specialists coming in and, you know, heart monitors and everything going. But it, you know, it lasts, it's a pulse in the day. And, uh, you know, if there's a severe bus accident or something like that, you might have a lot of uh, uh, injured people, but it's, it ends, you know, and then things go back to being the normal life of the hospital. With COVID, it never ended. It was constant. And people were dying hour after hour. And the emergency, sense of emergency went on week after week, month after month. So it was physically draining and emotionally draining. And then it was also dangerous. Uh, you know, these people were exposed to uh, you know, highly dangerous disease. And, you know, I'm I'm so moved by the stories that I heard from them, uh, you know. But the other thing is they, it as it turns out, because they were able to wear protective equipment, masks, and so on, uh, their fatality rate was in some ways less than the city as a whole. 
Yeah, which is which is you know, really does sort of say say something about the fact that we didn't have kind of public health measures maybe um, in place you know towards the beginning of the pan- pandemic. Um, That's right. I, I, clearly, the pandemic amplified inequalities, and you do a lot of reporting around around this in in the book about the outsize impact it's had on minority groups and, and people on low incomes. Can you maybe just talk a, a little bit about about that? How it really did amplify some of the sort of the structural uh, problems that we faced, in the, not just in the United States, but this was also true in the United Kingdom as well. I know it. It. I've been. I have to say, educated about the the uh, the disparity, the healthcare disparities, in in a way that I hadn't been before. And one figure that uh, Dr. Ebony Hilton, who is an anesthesiologist at the University of Virginia Medical School, uh, was very interesting and helpful to me on this subject. The most striking statistic uh, to me is that one out of 800 black people who were alive in January 2020 are dead because of COVID. And you think about it, you know, we're, we're... coming up on 600,000 dead Americans, a disproportionate number of them uh, are people of color. And, you know, there are different reasons for it. There, you know, most of the people who died had underlying you know, morbidities, uh, diabetes, heart disease, congestive heart failure, you know, lots of, you know, underlying problems, which were characteristic of communities where healthcare is not well provided. And so they were a vulnerable population. They also tended to be the kind of people who still had to work. You know, they were the, comprised a large core of the essential workers. So they were far more exposed to danger and to disease than most people were. And so, you know, they were already vulnerable, but they continued to do their work and therefore they, they suffered disproportionately. Right. So, so, that, so clearly, as you point out in the book, there were kind of deep structural problems in our economies, too. So, you know, people were, were losing jobs, but the markets were buoyant. I mean, how do we marry those two things? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, this has been a, a kind of education for me in many respects, because economy is not one of my strong subjects. But I, I spent a lot of time talking to, talking to economists. And and on this very subject, you know, how, what about this disparity? Uh, why is it that um, the market can be soaring when jobs are being lost right and left? And, you know, I, I talked to some people at Goldman Sachs, and Steve Strongen is, uh, you know, former partner there, and he was the man who was the, their forecaster for 20 years. Uh, and his... His view was if initially people were just in this state of frozen. The investors were frozen. Uh, things will change. We'll just wait this out. And, uh, you know, we waited out previous pandemics. You know, there was, you know, the, the, the bird flu. You know, there was uh, the, the Ebola scare. You know, those kinds of SARS in 2003. And the markets really didn't move. This one, this particular pandemic, you know, it was like a, a dinner guest that comes in, you know, eats everything in the pantry. You know, it just wouldn't leave. And so uh, there was a sense of, wait a minute, this is not going to pass quickly. And Strongen told me that the moment where there was a realization among investors that this was different is when they learned that the asymptomatic transmission 
was a, a big factor in contagion. And that meant that it wasn't going to be easily contained with, uh, you know, fever checks at the airport and so on. Uh, this is something that was going to travel underground. And then they began to start looking for opportunity. For the, you know, they knew that the, the economy was going to change forever. So what will survive and what will prosper because of this? And that's what accounted for this sudden leap, uh, a movement to new stocks, the future economy. A shocking amount of deaths, um, both in the US and the UK, um, came in nursing homes. And one of the most powerful sort of parts of the, of, of the book um, and poignant part of the book um, was the, uh, what happened at the soldier's home in, is it Holyoke in Massachusetts? Um, how, did, how did it go so wrong in nursing homes? What were the failures, do you think? Let's start with the fact that the nursing home in this case and in the case of many others was understaffed. Uh, there was a, a casualness uh, about the nursing. Uh, you know, nurses would move from ward to ward, unmindful of the fact that they might be carrying contagion. And, uh, and that's how this spread uh, in the soldier's home. Uh, one soldier, uh, form, one veteran, uh, came down with COVID. And uh, days passed before he was tested. And, and then, of course, we had, you know, a week passed before the results came back. And by that time, of course, uh, many other people in the ward that he was in, which was the memory ward, uh, also became infected. Uh, it scared off a lot of nurses, and, uh, and the administrators had no idea what to do. Uh, and nurses began to move from ward to ward, and then eventually they decided to consolidate uh, the two memory wards. In other words, mixing together people who were infected and uninfected. And that was a guaranteed disaster. Instead of isolating people that were symptomatic, they, they put them together. And, you know, these were, you know, in, in the one case, you know, uh, a, a World War II veteran who'd been on D-Day, uh, you know, he was, he was infected by... Uh, I mean, this is so chaotic. I mean, the thing that I, 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 I struggle to convey is just how, I mean, these are people with Alzheimer's and dementia. Uh, they, they don't know where they are. They, they, they wander around the wards uh, lost. They get into other people's beds. And, and, you know, the contagion becomes so general, there's no way to, to stop it. And the nurses, you know, horrible situation. They have no leadership. They're doing what they can. There's, they have very little to offer. They, you know, they offer morphine, uh, but they're, you know, essentially they're just there to watch the men die. And they did. Uh, 72 of them. Uh, it was, you know, it, unfortunately not an unusual story, just a different uh, population. It feels like there was enormous pushback against science, against authority in some parts of, of society, but also in government too. Do you think that the fact that we're hopefully on the way out of this because of vaccines uh, is going to mean there's going to be a, a shift uh, towards, you know, a newfound respect for science? Or do you think, sadly, that science has become 
politicized and there's no kind of way of you know getting out of this situation now science is is seen as political it's it's too early for me to tell frankly but you know i i was interested in that subject when i i spoke to a medical historian in bologna italy gianna pomata who she's retired from johns hopkins and uh, and I asked her, you know, to compare this pandemic to plagues of the past, and she's she immediately landed on the bubonic plague, uh, which killed a third of the population of Europe. I mean, it was far you know more mortal than the pandemic that we are dealing with. But what interested her was that this was in the Middle Ages, and medicine at that time was called academic medicine. Uh, the truth is, a lot of it with astrology, you know, uh, it was, but you know, the people realized that it didn't work. And, uh, and it opened their minds to new forms of thinking. You know, the doctors, you know, there was a, an allegiance to the church and to the pietistic thinking of the time. And she said it was, it was like a, a fresh wind was blowing through the population, and it opened the doors to the Renaissance, the most creative period in many respects in human history. And so I don't know that we'll have a similar burst of, of learning and culture that characterized uh, Italy in the, in the 14th century. But it is hopeful to think that we will learn a lesson from this and dismal to think that we may fail and that COVID-19 was a harbinger of something far worse and we didn't take the lesson. And do you think partly it was, the, the, the confusion in large part was because there were various narratives playing out, um, you know, in various sections of the media. So there, were, there was an amplification of inexpert or, or dangerous ideas um, you know, hydroxychloroquine, or, or there was the Operation Gridlock in, in, in Michigan. There were there was a lot of there was a lot of noise around this, and I guess at the centre of it, we've got two very different characters. We've got uh, Dr. Fauci, and we've got we've got President Trump. Um, how would how would you characterise their their relationship from 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 what you learned in your reporting? <laughs> you know, at the beginning, they were friendly. Uh, and, you know, they're both New Yorkers in their 70s, and they shared that kind of New York spirit. And uh, I think uh, Trump liked him, and uh, Fauci, you know, certainly tolerated him. Uh, he was the seventh president that, that uh, Dr. Fauci had worked with. Uh, but, yeah, you know, Trump, he governed by instinct, and uh, his instinct told him that uh, this was going to go away and it wasn't a serious disease. Now, I know that he told Bob Woodward that he, he understood from the very beginning that this was you know, more, far more dangerous than your strenuous flu, as he, as he called it. Uh, but his actions uh, speak differently. Uh, his instinct was to let it play out. And, you know, I... I know that's an accusation that I'm making against him, but I just look, I'm trying to understand his actions. Uh, you know, when the, one of his calls to the governors, there are 50 governors, and then add to that tribal leaders and territory uh, chiefs and so on, every week they would have a call to the White House. And uh, 
in uh, March, I think it was, of 2020, uh, the president said, you know, we're behind you. Just want you to understand we're with you, you know, we understand. But as for, uh, you know, personal protective equipment and ventilators, it's better that you get it yourselves. And uh, we're with you, we're behind you, but you do it. (laughs) And the governors were totally unprepared for this. They thought, first of all, that, you know, FEMA and all these other federal agencies that are there for emergencies would be diving into action. Uh, That the the national storehouse of, you know, which they didn't realize was severely depleted of, you know, masks and gowns and ventilators and all the stuff that was supposed to be available to them. They thought they'd be getting shipments right away. And Gretchen Whitmer, who's the governor of Michigan, told me that she realized in that call that they didn't have enough personal protective equipment for the next shift. I mean, they were out and there was no place to turn. The government wasn't going to help them. And so they, they began ordering <laughs> equipment themselves, all of them calling China. And, uh, you know, and, and the Chinese w- would respond, well, you know, New York has just weighed in with a higher bid. And so they found themselves like Cuomo, the governor of, of New York, said uh, it was like being on eBay. Uh, you know, what am I bid for this? And then when the, when the equipment actually came into the United States, the feds would seize it. And, and uh, you know, like this happened to the governor of Massachusetts. And the, so the next time he ordered millions of masks from China, he got the owner of the New England Patriots to take the team plane to China, fly it back to Logan Airport in Boston, and then they hid it. And this was not uncommon. Governors all over, when they got the equipment, they hid it from the federal government. Because the federal government was seizing, seizing shipments, right, from, from states. The, the the saddest example, I think, was Gina Raimondo, who is the governor of Rhode Island. And um, she didn't have much of the standing of, you know, governor of a big state to order a huge amount of equipment. So she was depending on the federal government to send her masks and gowns and you know, everything that they needed. And they promised that they would and they were going to send a truck. And, you know, finally they sent the truck and it was empty. They sent the governor of Rhode Island an empty truck, which to me embodies the federal response so, so tragically. Well, well, talking about the kind of the federal response, um, you know, one of the most jaw-dropping moments of the entire period was the, the kind of the rambling corona, coronavirus briefing where, when the president um, started rambling on about disinfectant and, and, and ultraviolet light and sat on the podium next to him was uh, Deborah Burks, um, who at the time, I think you, you write, had, had lost confidence in the CDC and she later took to driving across the country informing public health officials and politicians about best practice. I mean, f- for me, that sort of almost kind of crystallises the dysfunction that was going on at that point. Um, I, I, guess, I guess she'd lost confidence in the CDC. Do you, how do you think the CDC come, comes out of the pandemic, um, Lawrence? Chastened, you know, I, 
it's it, it's sad to me because I had, as a young reporter, I had written several stories that took me to the CDC, and I had been so impressed. I mean, this to me was a model govern, government agency staffed with people that were brilliant and courageous. I mean, they would go off to these hot zones that I wouldn't want to get close to, you know, and they were humble. I mean, I thought of them as being noble, and uh, and the institution they worked for, they regarded as somehow sacred. To see that proud institution so humbled, um, it's it's heartbreaking. I'm hopeful that you know now that we know uh, just how broken it is, that you know be able to reconstitute itself. I mean, the health of America and much of the world depends on it. Sure, and 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 beforehand, you know, before the pandemic, research by Johns Hopkins, you know, I, I think the year before. Um, the pandemic suggested that the U.S. was the the best prepared of all nations to handle a situation like this. Um, and number two was the U.K. <laughs> so, shake hands, partner. <laughs> so we, I mean, we managed to handle the crisis far worse than pretty much any East Asian country, many African countries, many other countries elsewhere in the world with much less sophisticated um, healthcare systems. And, and uh, But well, why was that? What, what, what went wrong? Well, there are several things going into it. One is, you know, more affluent countries you know, tend to have a lot of air travel. And so the, 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 the spread of the disease came more quickly into, for instance, Europe, Italy, places like a lot of travelers come to. And so there was that. I mean, if you're uh, a, a, a country in, in Central Africa, for instance, you may not have that incredible burden of tourism. Uh, and so that was one thing. Uh, the other, th- you know, another thing is that there, you know, advanced medicine had very little to do with uh, treating uh, COVID nineteen. You know, there weren't any treatments, and uh, so it, there was no advantage in many respects of being an advanced industrial country. The other thing is a lot of these other countries that you mentioned had been schooled in pandemics and epidemics in the past. You know, AIDS in Africa, you know, that, you know, uh, Ebola, uh, you know, the, 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 there was a, an inclination to listen to public health and understand the dangers of, of dis- communicable diseases. But finally, I think it comes down to hubris. Uh, I think that in both the cases of the United States and the UK, uh, we were so sure of ourselves. And, you know, we had put contagious diseases to rest. That was something, that's so early 20th century. Uh, and yet, if you look at what was happening, actually happening, just since the turn of the century, you know, we've had SARS, Ebola, Zika, West Nile, Nipah, bird flu. Uh, I, I'm, I'm leaving out several others. These are novel diseases uh, that are coming one after another and stimulated in part by the encroachment of humanity into areas that had been the margins of the you know, animal world in the past. And also you know, global warming, uh, which has had the effect of re- reshuffling uh, the habitats of, of animals around the world. So we're more exposed to diseases that originate from animals. And that's going to continue. That's why I say COVID-19 is a harbinger of what's to come. 
Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, um, a few years ago, I went to Southeast Asia with uh, Larry Brilliant, who I'm, you might have come across, who um, who who's formerly used to lead the WHO and, and led the um, vaccinations program uh, to combat uh, smallpox. And you know him uh, and you know many many other epidemiologists. They they knew that there was something coming. So, I, I guess the question I would have for you, uh, you know, given that that that, that many people in science, have, you know, Jeremy Farrar here in the in the in the UK at the Wellcome Trust, uh, they had warned against this. So, do you think this was, you know, a failure of leadership, a failure of governance, a failure of long term planning, of, of, or a lack of maybe even a lack of imagination? You know, what I would put it on is uh, the, the failure of, of international institutions in the sense of cooperation among nations. You know, the WHO is an excellent example. Uh, it's gotten a lot of criticism, and it deserves a lot of criticism for its response to this pandemic. But it's a supplicant. It has no authority. It can't punish China for its behavior. Uh it, it it depends on the goodwill of its donor co- countries. And we really do need an international health authority that has teeth. And, you know, so in, in everybody's interest, including nations like China, where so many of these diseases originate, they'd be helped by the international community. But, uh, you know, their their response was to try to shut it out. And, um, you know, that that leads to tragedy. If you look back at the 2002-2003 SARS uh, epidemic, which started in China, you know, with bats, uh, just just like this one, uh, it, uh, you know, the Chinese were so worried about the international response that when health authorities traveled to China to find out what was going on, the Chinese authorities hid the patients. They put them in ambulances and taxis until the authorities left town. Now, we're lucky that that SARS epidemic didn't grow into being the pandemic of COVID-19. COVID-19 tends to have about a 2% fatality, and SARS had 10%. Imagine having a disease that's five times more mortal than the one that we're dealing with. And MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome uh, coronavirus, the death rate is 35%. Now, that's what we could have been facing and may face again one day in the future. So you're a reporter famed for putting in legwork. Um, You presumably were in lockdown. Um, how did you approach the reporting during a a pandemic? That must have been a very unusual way of you. Frustrating. (laughs) Yeah, it's frustrating. You know, I, I enjoy talking to my sources, you know, in the, there's a serendipity about just being with somebody and learning things about them that, um, you might not know or not think to ask. Uh, for instance, you know, I met Barney Graham, uh, the, the the inventor of the vaccine that is uh, part of the Moderna and the Pfizer shot. Uh, I met him early a year before when I was working on a novel uh, about uh, uh, an imaginary virus, and uh, the novel is called The End of October, and he helped me invent the virus. But I got to sit in his office and see his lab, 
And those were details I was able to port over and put into uh, this book. But I wasn't able to do that with my other sources because I hadn't had the previous experience. And, you know, I learned things about Barney. Uh, you know, for instance, you know, he had a map of Kansas on, uh, on his wall, and, uh, and it, it led me to ask about his background and so on. Uh, those are the kinds of things that a reporter, you know, is, if he's tuned in to his subject, you know, there, there are things that might not come up in an ordinary conversation in a Zoom meeting or a telephone call, but uh, just being in the presence of someone, uh, it, it's just really very helpful. And anyway, I felt handicapped by uh, my confinement. On the other hand, it saved a lot of time, you know, that I wasn't on the planes and, you know, I wasn't, you know, there was that. But uh, uh, I, I'm dying to get back, you know, and actually talk to people. I, I, I'm fond of talking to people like Barney Graham who are so knowledgeable about a subject that I know so little about. And, uh, you know, I implore them to educate me. And, you know, occasionally you find somebody like that who uh, feels, you know, I guess a kind of obligation to explain through me to the general public what's actually going on. So, so let's end on what, what I hope will be a, a, a note of you know, optimism or hope. Um, do you think there's going to be some positive outcomes in what, of what we've experienced? You, you mentioned maybe the CDC um, having a think about how it approaches it, 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 the way it operates. Um, any other sort of changes do you think that will offer us a real sort of positive road, road forward? Well, it's not all going to be positive. You know, I think we are in for massive changes, uh, changes in the way that people live, for instance, you know, uh, office space. You know, <laughs> now, would you like some? Uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's an, you know, I think there's a profound change in the way Americans and people around the world are going to be living their lives. Uh, you know, I'll give the... I'll give the Trump administration credit for speeding along the production of vaccines. That was essential. Uh, and they promised that there would be 40 million people, Americans inoculated by the end of the year, and they actually inoculated 2 million. So by their own standards, their own metrics, you know, that's a, a, a fair report card. Things have changed now with a new administration that takes government seriously. And, you know, 50% of Americans are fully inoculated. 70% are forecast by the summer. That's a tremendous accomplishment. And I think, you know, for a long time in our country, going back to the Reagan administration for sure, there's been a deep suspicion of government and the sense that private industry can do things so much better. And in some cases, certainly that's true. But there are some things that only government can do, and a well-run government has to is essential to making sure that they do it well. And I think people are beginning to appreciate the the utility of government in a way that they haven't in the past. I think the success of the vaccines also makes people appreciate science and feel more trusted, trusting in it. And so those things I think are important. Uh, there'll be cultural changes and so on, you know, uh, that will be persistent. And a year from now, we'll be able to get a clearer assessment of how we are different as a people. 
But in those regards, I think that we've already seen a tremendous change and a positive one. Well, that's a great note to end on. Uh, Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us at Wide Foresight. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. If you're enjoying this series, please do give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow the Wired community. Thank you so much.